This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. In our first podcast this month, we spoke with Karen Masterson about her book, The Malaria Project, and the practice of human subjects research during World War II. If you haven't listened to this conversation yet, be sure not to miss it. But let's stick with this theme. The regulations and ethics guiding human subjects research in the U.S. emerged from this era. In the few decades following World War II, a number of significant abuses of participants in research made the newspapers. They were rightly billed as a human rights crisis. Ethical codes and regulations began to develop internationally, and in 1966, Beecher's bombshell dropped. Beecher's bombshell is how Dr. Susan Letterer describes a paper published in 1966 by Henry K. Beecher in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was only seven pages long, but the paper titled Ethics and Clinical Research Exposed the Dire Ethical State of Human Subjects Research in the U.S. In this segment of a presentation titled Beyond the Bombshell, the Legacy of Henry K. Beecher's Call for Reform in Clinical Research Ethics, Letterer introduces us to the history of Henry K. Beecher and the influence his paper had on the course of human research ethics. By the time this article reached publication at the New England Journal of Medicine, it included 22 specific examples of human subject research abuses. The paper describes these cases as symptoms of a broken ethical system. Many listening to this podcast have probably already read this paper. In case you haven't, we'll link to it from the podcast description. What many may not know is that Beecher's bombshell originally included 50 examples and even stronger language than what we find in the final publication. As an historian, Letterer is interested in what the lost 28 examples mean and how they may deepen our understanding of Beecher's important work. In this podcast, Letterer introduces us to Beecher, his paper, and his role in the history of research ethics. Dr. Susan Letterer is the Robert Terrell Professor and Chair of History of Medicine and Bioethics at University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. She is author of Flesh and Blood, Organ Transplantation and Blood Transfusion in 20th Century America and the popular Subjected to Science, Human Experimentation in America Before the Second World War. This presentation was originally a plenary session at the 2014 Primer Advancing Ethical Research Conference. Over the course of the 1950s, Beecher continued to develop his ideas about human experimentation. He published a number of articles about the, the dilemmas and the limits of appropriate human experimentation, and he also took part in policy discussions concerning the guidelines for clinical research that would result in 1964 in the Declaration of Helsinki. Beecher also grew progressively more concerned about the welfare of research subjects and what he saw as the irresponsibility of a number of young American clinical researchers. And by 1965, he was ready to take a much more active role. So what is often referred to in the literature as Beecher's bombshell, that is the publication in 1966 of his article, began as a presentation in March 1965. 
at a symposium sponsored by the Upjohn Company, which was a large pharmaceutical company, Beecher delivered a paper entitled Problems and Complexities of Clinical Research. And in his uh, discussion, he cited 18 examples in which human beings were being used without their consent in studies that were unrelated to their individual benefit but were instead undertaken to gain new information which would be of value to society. At a conference of science writers, not surprisingly, reports of Beecher's indictment of human subjects, guinea pig research, appeared in the popular press. Here's a couple of headlines uh, immediately following the Upjohn conference. The Los Angeles Times reporter Harry Nelson described Beecher's alarming claim that breaches of ethical conduct in the use of human subjects were not by any means rare, but instead were universal. And the article um, in that case identified four troubling studies. A study of 585 American servicemen who were given sulfa drugs for a streptococcal infection instead of the newly available drug penicillin, which was known to prevent rheumatic fever. And at least 25 of these men subsequently developed rheumatic fever, leaving them, in Beecher's words, crippled for life. A second study that he referred to involved 31 women undergoing various types of minor surgery. To study abnormalities in the heart rhythm, these women received an injection or several injections of carbon dioxide to enable investigators to study these effects, which prompted life-threatening interruptions in their heart rhythms. A third study also detailed withholding treatment from a group of some 400 charity patients, leading to the death of 23, as well as a study of the effects of removal of the thymus in infants. Well, Beecher next approached Joseph Garland, the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, who agreed, eventually, to publish, but only after an extended series of letters and compromises on both the part of the editor and the author. And certainly one of Garland's considerations was the length. By this time, Beecher's 18 cases that he'd presented at Brook Lodge had actually grown to 50 examples. And as part of the editorial process, that number was reduced to 22 examples from that large number of 50. Although Beecher would later say that it was essentially for reasons of space, it was apparently not that simple. The New England Journal of Medicine editors did not find, in their words, all equally compelling all the examples that Beecher had brought forward. And I have to say this raises, this raise, has raised for me an intriguing question, sort of in what way were the 28 examples that were left out of his original manuscript sort of uh, considered less than compelling. And how might knowing those other 28 examples, how would that change our view of what Beecher was trying to do and perhaps what he could have done had he had his, had, had his way in publication? But before analyzing those missing examples, I do want to remind you of some of those that did appear. Perhaps the best known and the most controversial involve cases that were actually quite well known in the popular press. This is an article. How many of you have read this article? Okay, so this is a very well-known article. I'm glad to hear that. Um, example 16, for example, uh, in, in Beecher's uh, 22, involved a study to determine the period of infectivity of hepatitis 
performed at an institution for mentally defective children, so-called mentally defective children, that is, the Willowbrook studies conducted by investigator Saul Krugman and his colleagues. Uh, in uh, example 17 was another quite well-known study which entailed the injection of live cancer cells into 22 hospitalized patients as part of a study of immunity to cancer, the so-called Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital study, which involved elderly and senile patients, uh, which was also led um, by chief of the section on clinical virology at Sloan Kettering Institute for Cancer Research, uh, the physician Chester Southam. So which other types of research subjects participated in Beecher's 22 examples? Here's just sort of a, a listing of the types of publications that provoked his concern. In addition to mentally defective children, mentally retarded children, the very elderly, like the patients at the Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital, soldiers in the armed forces, charity patients, the terminally ill, alcoholics, children and newborns, and patients at the NIH Clinical Center. Now, which journals had published these research reports? Well, actually, six of the examples had already appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. Five had appeared in the Journal of Clinical Investigation, two in JAMA, two in Circulation, and the rest you can see in other. And, and Beecher's point was that these were not marginal, but mainstream investigations uh, funded by major funders and published in leading medical journals. Now, this information about where the things were published did not actually appear in the article, as I said. And in fact, Arnold Relman, who was editor of the Journal of Clinical Investigation, actually wrote to Beecher seeking some confirmation about uh, whether he was actually referring to articles that appeared in the JCI and the JCI's role in facilitating the publication of these ethically questionable research. Relman hazarded a guess in the letter that the JCI was in fact the journal uh, to which uh, Beecher was referring when he wrote that of 100 consecutive human studies that he had examined in a single journal, 12 had seemed to Beecher unethical. And recall that JCI had actually published five of these, and 12 actually appeared in, his, in the larger list of 50 examples. Could that journal by any chance be ours, Roman asked? If so, I would be much obliged to you if you could specify the articles that troubled you. Beecher, however, in this case refused to provide any citations, and he actually reprimanded Relman, saying, if you cannot spot very easily unethical or questionably ethical examples, you are not the Bud Relman I knew a number of years ago. So Relman was not happy with him. Now, what other editorial changes altered Henry Beecher's expose of the difficult problems posed in clinical research? And what if Beecher had prevailed and published his article in his entirety? What else would we have known? Well, the various drafts of Beecher's unpublished paper and the extensive editorial correspondence between Beecher and the editors at JAMA and the New England Journal of Medicine are, are readily available in Beecher's papers. And based on my comparison, of the published version of Beecher's paper with the subsequent drafts as it went through the editorial process, I would like to argue that the published version was not only much shorter, but it was decidedly less evaluative, it was less emotional, and it was less revealing about the actual subject populations that were used.
Now, it's not surprising that manuscripts are altered in the process of publication. And it's also not surprising that in the course of the process, some of the emotional characterization that Beecher used and sort of, and the passion uh, about his assessment of these ethically troubling examples was muted. Uh, and you get a sense of this from the original title and the published title. Ethics and the explosion of human experimentation becomes ethics and clinical research. And as I said, Beecher's original drafts were explicitly more judgmental. The original manuscript, for example, was filled with allusions to martyrs of science, to human guinea pigs, and comparisons to the Nazi doctors. But none of these emotionally laden descriptions appeared in the final paper. For example, in a clinical study of treatment for typhoid fever, Beecher explained how the antibiotic chloramphetacol had been established as an effective treatment for the disease. Yet investigators at the San Lazaro Hospital in Manila, Philippines, deliberately withheld the drug from 157 charity patients. And when they compared the outcome for the untreated with uh, the outcome of the 251 patients who received the drug, they found that a higher mortality rate of 23%, that is 36 patients, a group of 36 patients, had died in the course of the study. Patients who would not have been expected to do so uh, if they had not been denied the established therapy. These investigators, knowing full well the efficacy of chloramphenicol in the treatment of typhoid fever, evidently believed Beecher wrote that they had the right to choose martyrs for science, 36 of them, whether they believed a few others who would be willing to face the matter would agree. Now, this example was not dismissed from the, uh, the corpus of examples. Uh, it was considered compelling by the editors. Uh, but the description of the patients as martyrs for science did not appear in the published text. The New England Journal of Medicine editor Joseph Garland repeatedly sought to persuade Beecher, for example, to eliminate a published report about clinical testing of another antibiotic, a case that Beecher fought successfully to preserve in his published article. This was a study in which investigators were studying the effect of a drug of an antibiotic called Tri-A, which was used to treat acne on children and adolescents at a group home for mental defectives and juvenile delinquents in Laurel, Maryland. The researchers, Howard Tickton and Hyman Zimmerman, were especially interested in the unexpected liver damage associated with the use of the drug. They enrolled 50 subjects, who were all healthy young men except for acne, placed them on a regimen of Tri-A for three to four weeks, uh, blood tests were performed on the subjects after two weeks and revealed that over 50% had signs of liver poisoning, poisoning that worsened when they continued to receive the drug and resolved quickly when the drug was discontinued. Eight of these subjects with the marked liver damage underwent liver biopsy. Four of the eight would go on to receive a challenge dose of Tri-A and underwent a second liver biopsy. Three of the four, again, developed marked liver abnormalities. Now, in his original manuscript, Beecher quoted from an editorial from the British Medical Journal. 
Juvenile delinquency in the United States obviously carries hazards which many of us had not previously suspected. The pimpled gangster of today may find himself the bilious guinea pig of tomorrow. It seems a little hard, perhaps, for a boy who has spent his formative years learning how to dodge flick knives to fall victim to intercostal perforation by the meningi needle. Editor Joseph Garland failed to provide or failed to persuade Beecher to exclude the TRIA study in his publication. He had to be content with deleting the harsh wit of the anonymous uh, editorialist for the British Medical Journal. Now, I've already mentioned that Beecher had great familiarity with some of the researches conducted by Nazi investigators. And in some of the initial drafts of his landmark New England Journal paper, he explicitly invoked the specter of Nazi medicine, comparing some of the experiments that were undertaken by American investigators to Nazis quite explicitly. Some of these examples were deemed equally uncompelling by the editors, and all of the allusions to Nazis were deleted from the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, the last thing I want to mention that sort of disappears in the published version of his landmark paper is the issue of race. Beecher's 1966 bombshell article is colorless. There is no acknowledgement that race or ethnicity made some populations more uh, vulnerable to difficult problems. But the unpublished manuscript made several references to uh, patients of color and to so-called Negro patients. But all mentions of race of the individuals, um, experiments that were performed on, on colored patients, on Negro patients, were deleted uh, from Beecher's paper. Presumably, such racial identifications were excised from the manuscript because the editors, with Beecher's approval, had sought to dampen what were considered potentially inflammatory and political aspects of this critique of medical research. And certainly, Beecher received correspondence from people who believed that experiments on people of color was a terrific problem that the medical research community was not paying sufficient attention to. And of course, well, I'll just mention, among those um, references to experiments on patients of color were experiments conducted by Eugene Stead. The revelation in 1972 of a 40-year study of untreated syphilis in African Americans drove home the notion that race could, uh, in fact, lead to greater vulnerability of American research subjects. If I had more time, I would go into much greater detail about what motivated Henry Beecher to take the unusual step of publishing this bombshell article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1966. I could tell you, for example, about some of the explanations that have been proffered, but I do want to share with you one archival find that I uh, made recently uh, in the Beecher Papers at the Countway Library. Although a lot of people have, have speculated what led Beecher uh, to undertake an expose, actually Beecher left sort of a very clear record in his own hand about why he undertook this. Sort of among the uh, yellowing pages in the Beecher archive, 
I came across sort of a yellow sheet, sort of handwritten, where he had actually sort of posed the question, why me? And he offered um, this explanation. He was at the end of his career rather than the beginning. He could take the risk, the personal risk, of going public with this expose uh, because he was very close to retirement. In his opinion, he was also qualified because he had experience both as a clinician providing therapy for patients, but also because he was an investigator on the wards of MGH. He had an established record of research. More than that, he also identified himself as one of the founding fathers of psychopharmacology and could point to his record and interest in placebo and placebo-controlled trials. And so I want to sort of be among those who would recognize that Henry Beecher did have his own good and compelling reasons for undertaking such an expose. So let me just say in, in concluding, I, I want to suggest here that Henry Beecher's journey to his 1966 bombshell was actually much more complicated than we've assumed. His was not a simple journey, nor was he a simple man. He continues to be a compelling presence nonetheless in the world of clinical research ethics. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time. 